We're still in the greeting part of uh, this letter, and don't forget that this is a letter that John has already said that he's writing to the seven churches which are in Asia, and he, of course, in his greeting has wished them grace and peace, and this grace and peace doesn't come from him, it comes from God, it comes from the Holy Spirit, and it comes from uh, Jesus Christ. And he's still in his discussion of Jesus Christ when we get to verse 8. Uh, there are some who thinks that believe that this is talking about God, but I think it's out of context to say that it's talking about somebody other than Jesus because that's the discussion he was having. He was talking about Jesus. And so it says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. He's putting an ending or a conclusion to his greeting here, and he's concluded with Jesus Christ. And the thing that he says about Jesus Christ, first of all, he says, he says this is Jesus speaking, I am Alpha and Omega. Now, I was scared last Wednesday night I was going to get to this verse and mess up Andrew's talks. I knew he was talking about the Alpha and Omega. I didn't want to steal any of his thunder. But what does John mean, or Jesus speaking mean, when he says he's the Alpha and the Omega? What is it, Roger? That's exactly right. The Greek alphabet, it goes alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, iota, kappa, uh, lambda, uh, mu, nu, uh, chi, omicron, sigma, I mean, rho, sigma, tau, um, upsilon, phi, ki, c, omega. No? <laughs> I had two years of Greek. <laughs> but anyway, it's like saying A to Z. Jesus saying, I am A to Z. Now, what in the world would that mean, saying, I am A to Z? All right. So, as he says here in the text, he says he's the beginning and the end. So, he's making a comparison to the beginning and the end. But there's something more going on here when you say from A to Z. And we'll just make it A to Z. What's that? All right. Everything in the middle. So, it's carrying the idea of completeness, that everything you need is right here. Back then, if you were going to write any kind of letter, any kind of language, any kind of note, anything, you would use something between Alpha and Omega. Today, if we write anything, you would use something between A and Z. And so the question can be asked, what comes before A? Nothing. There is no letter in our alphabet that comes before A, right? What comes after Z? Nothing. There's nothing that comes after Z. So Jesus is not only bringing out the idea here that he is the, the, the beginning and the end or the first and the last. It's the idea that everything that you need is found right here. When he says he is the Alpha and the Mega, he is complete. And once again, I always need to emphasize because I don't want us to forget, we need to always look at this through first century glasses and think about people being uh, persecuted, this would be comforting to them to understand and appreciate the symbolism here that Jesus is everything you need. You can find everything you need in Jesus. And, of course, he uh, talks about he's the beginning and the ending, and we don't want to misunderstand that and think that Jesus had a beginning or that Jesus has an ending because he doesn't. What he's saying is everything that there was before is him and everything that will come after is him. Well, first of all, your translation is a paraphrase. And so the guy is giving him, he's putting in his idea that this is talking about God. 
The translations do not say that. Strict translations do not say that. All right? He is giving us what he thinks in this particular verse. He's saying this is talking about God. I believe it's talking about Jesus. Now, here's the reason why he believes it's talking about God. Because where it says here in verse 8, it says, which is and which was and which is to come. That's the exact same language that John used earlier talking about God. But here's the thing we need to understand. The original language says the Lord, kurios, okay? So it's talking about the Lord, and then in the New Testament, when kurios is used, it's talking about Jesus Christ. But what's the point John is making then? If he refers to the Lord as the one who is, was, and to come, what is he identifying Jesus as? As God. Here's a very clear statement that Jesus is God. Now, it may be the one that paraphrased that for you is pointing out the fact that the Lord God is talking about Jesus because he is God. We never never need to forget about the fact that he is God. And that's what John is trying to give these people comfort. He says, you've got completely everything that you need. Uh, I was before the beginning and I'm after the ending. I am something that has always been around when he says which is and which was and which is to come. And all those things are pointing back to that phrase, the Lord. And John, of course, had been talking about Jesus before when he said, Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Even so, amen. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and the most famous theologians of all time have tried to figure out what they call the Holy Trinity. How does that work? How can they be three separate things but yet be one? I mean, that defies human logic, and I think that's the reason why we can't figure it out. I've seen people in the past try to draw diagrams. I remember when the first King James Bible came out, it had a, I don't know if you remember the little diagram it had on the front of it with the inter, intertwining circles. Um, it was trying to show the Trinity how that they could be separate, but yet they're all as one thing. We just can't figure out how that works. How can they have three separate identities but be the same identity? But never forget about the fact that Jesus Christ is God and has the power of God. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. We're all members of the same family, but we have different designations in that family. I guess the only place it would fall short is when you compare me to Karen, she has far more power than I do. (laughs) Okay. All right. So you realize what you just called Karen. Okay. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> All right, but, but Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 reminds us of this very important point that John is saying here. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that particular verse is talking about how that Jesus doesn't change. He always was before, he always will be, and he always will be in the future, or, or is and always will be in the future. And so... The whole point of this verse is to give the people who are reading it hope. This is consistency here. In a very inconsistent world they were living in, here was consistency. Here was something that was the standard. Here was something they could count on many times when they didn't know the next morning what they could count on because of the persecution they were living in. So this verse, when we read it, might not really grab us like it uh, grabbed them. But to them, it was a verse full of hope because here was a constant, consistent, 
thing they could grab a hold of and, and place their hope in. And um, in fact, he goes on in the verse and refers to himself as being the Almighty. Now, once again, there are some people, and I might be wrong about this, that say, well, this verse is still is talking about God. I think in the context it's got to be talking about Jesus. But Jesus is referred to the Almighty, and that's a word that we are familiar with. The word itself in the Greek is the word pantocrator. Pantocrator, P-A-N-T-O-K-R-A-T-O. And it carries more than just somebody be strong and mighty. It carries with it the idea of total dominion and total control, absolute control. And so when they read this, they read about the fact, well, you know, Rome thinks that they're in control. Uh, Rome rules the world. In fact, who can beat Rome at this time? Rome is the, is the most powerful nation that the world had ever seen. It'd be like me deciding to take, I got a few guns, but I take my few guns and I go and stand in front of the um, Fort Bragg and say, I'm going to take you down today. Well, that's pretty foolish because they got all kinds of weapons. In fact, they even have atomic bomb they could use on me. But folks, that's really what it's, the, the, what was going on when you thought about the church versus Rome. The very idea that they could somehow or another stand up to Rome when Rome had the power it did, that Rome could literally annihilate them and do it in a very short period of time except for one thing. Who was on their side? The Almighty. The proto-cantor. Uh, or the, I can't pronounce it right, I've said it wrong, the Pantocrator, I'll get it right here in a minute, uh, the one who has total dominion over everything. Uh, he is the one that is the, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the, the Lord. He is the one that is in charge, not Rome. And with him on your side, you can overcome the greatest odds that the world has ever seen. And this is perhaps the greatest odds the world had ever seen. Go back and study Rome and how powerful they were. And think about the church, what they had. They didn't have anything other than just being persecuted. Yes, I saw your... Was, oh, I'm sorry, I guess it was your hand I saw first. Uh, total dominion or con, total control. Now, absolute control is a good way to put it. Oh, okay. Yeah, how corrupt they were. Um, they were. They were some skeezy people. Um, and the church didn't seem like it could stand up to it at all. And especially when you saw what was happening to people who were members of the church at this time. You know, you'd be tempted to say, well, what's the use? We can't, we can't fight against them. We can't overcome them. There's no way in the world we're going to hold up to this. They're just too powerful and we're just too little. Uh, but yet, they had the Almighty on their side. Uh, good comments. Anything else anybody like to add? Well, notice what John says next in verse 9. And I love this verse. And I can imagine... Uh, how much hope this gave to those who were reading this. He says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Now, the King James really rearranges some words in here. Somebody has the NIV read that for us out loud. All right, go ahead, Barbara. Yeah, just stop. Let's just stop at Jesus Christ right now before we get to the Alpha Patmos. That is the rest of the verse, but... 
I want to zero in this first part here. What we have here is the trifecta of living in this time. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment, but the trifecta is tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. That sums up living at this time perfectly. Okay? John says, he makes it personal, he says, I, John, who also am your brother. Why do you think he used the word brother here? He could have said John the apostle or John the preacher. All right. He's he's emphasizing a certain point that he's really wanting to press right here because it sets the stage for the whole book and the hopes that people will pay attention to what he has to say. Notice he refers to himself as their brother, but then he refers to himself as, the King James Version, has companion, partner. Um, so what else does people have? What do you have? Yep, that's exactly what he's doing. In fact, the word here in the original language for partner and companion uh, is the word that have in common. Okay? Companion is a form of that, but it's the idea of having in common. This is something we have in common. And he's going to discuss tribulation and being in the kingdom, and he's going to trust perseverance, but he wants them to understand and appreciate the fact that what you're going through, I'm going through. It's very easy for someone to sit in an easy chair and say, oh, don't you worry about things. Uh, I know you're having it rough, but you'll be able to get through it. And you've been sitting in that easy chair and never had a troubling time in your life. What kind of help is that? Um, you know, having a... A preacher get up, and, and he's never experienced some of the things that members have experienced, and then try to tell them, um, you know, you'll, you'll be able to get through this. Keep your faith strong. Well, you know, a young preacher fresh out of school, he doesn't even know what trouble is yet. But here's somebody that knows trouble. Um, here's somebody that's gone through everything that they're going through. In fact, as he's going to say in the rest of the verse here, He's going through it right now because he's on the Isle of Patmos, which we'll talk more about in just a moment. But he wants to lay the groundwork from this point forward that everything that he tells them, they need to pay attention to it because it's coming from somebody's heart that's going through the exact same thing. There used to be an old saying years ago from the um, uh, Native Americans that say, never judge a man until you walk in his moccasins. I think we changed it into something else now, walking in his shoes or whatever. But the idea behind that is, you know, you can't, you can't really understand what a person has gone through unless you've gone through it yourself. Well, John says, I've gone through it myself. And so everything I'm telling you, you know, we're, we're in this together. And what I'm telling you is, is to encourage you as it encourages me. Well, let's look at what he says. This trifecta that he's got here. The very first thing he says is your partner or companion, or we have this in common, tribulation. Now, what in the world is tribulation? It's funny, those who believe in premillennialism say this tribulation is going to come later, but John says we're in tribulation right now. What is tribulation? Suffering. Um, the original word, this is a word in the Greek that originally um, carried with it the idea of um, pressure, um, put it, like putting a rock on something and putting pressure on it, or putting your hand down on something and putting pressure on it. And the original word, that's all it meant. It didn't carry with it the idea of suffering. But as time went on, this word became known as suffering, especially suffering among Christians. And so when you see the word tribulation, you don't just see suffering. 
you see constant suffering. You see constant pressure. You see, every day when you get up in the morning and every night when you go to bed, it's just constant, constant, constant. It doesn't stop. That's the true definition of tribulation. Uh, You can have trouble one day, and that's trouble. You might refer to it as tribulation. Or you may have a a brief respite and not have tribulation for a while and say, well, that's pretty good. But the idea behind this word and what they were dealing with, what John was dealing with and what the first century church was dealing with at this time, it was constant. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Give up Christianity or I'm going to kill you. Pressure, pressure. Give up uh, Christianity or I'm going to take your children away from you. Just constant. They were dealing with this 24-7 all the time. And only can we understand and appreciate that can we understand why this book was so important to them. Chris, did I see your hand up a minute ago? Or I, did I answer your question or still what you wanted to say? It says persecution. You know, persecution is definitely a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. But persecution carries the idea of being uh, attacked because of a belief, which is true, they were being persecuted. But this, the idea here is that he wants us and wanted them, and they were aware of this, the magnitude of this. You know, this is not just your everyday run the mill, I've got trouble. This was something that weighed upon them and weighed upon them. I just can't imagine not knowing what's going to happen to you the next day. Who's going to knock on the door? Who's going to call you out in the street? Who's going to discover you? It's just, just the life at this time was just unreal. And it was just the constant pressure. I don't know if you've ever had something in your life that was bothering you, that just nagged you, that just kept you awake. Well, usually that's resolved after a while, but here's something that's not resolved. You have a question? That's right. That's right. That, and yep, everlasting punishment means everlasting punishment, doesn't it? And it almost is a misnomer to say how long eternity is. You can't attach long to it because long means there's an ending, but there's not. Very good illustration, good point. So he's dealing with tribulation here. But then he makes the point, as a part of the rest of this trifecta, that they are in the kingdom. He says, I am your companion in tribulation, and I am your companion in the kingdom. Well, what does that mean? All right, very good. He is saying, he's making a connection here. I know why you're in tribulation, because I'm a member of the same kingdom you are. And that's why we're going through this tribulation. Now, it's interesting, once again, that we have those who try to tell us that Christ's kingdom hasn't come, that this book is a prophecy of his coming kingdom. But we've already seen it earlier in chapter 1, and now we see it again. John very emphatically says that they're in the kingdom right now. And so they are a part of Christ's kingdom. And we could, of course, go through so many different verses which talks about how that we are in his kingdom, that Christ is the king of his kingdom, that type of thing. But we're not going to do that, do that tonight. But he is making sure they understand that they are in tribulation because they are in the kingdom. So he adds a third thing to that now to make this complete. He uses the King James Version, uses the word patience. I imagine some of your other translations have the word steadfastness, endurance. The word itself carries with it steadfastness with courage. All right? So look what he's done here. He says, you've got tribulation, the reason being, you're in the kingdom. You add steadfast courage to that, why? Because you're in the kingdom. 
Why do you need to have steadfast courage? Because you're in the kingdom. Well, because of the fact you're having tribulation. Why? Because you're in the kingdom. So he combines these three things together, and it sums it all up. It sums up the whole Christian experience of the first century. You're going to have tribulation because you're a Christian. But because you are a Christian, you don't give up. You have the courage to stand. You have the courage to go through this tribulation. You don't give up. John says, I'm your companion in this. I know everything you're going through. Don't give up. Now, the King James Version here says, in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, but the actual uh, preposition there is in. In Jesus Christ. In fact, um, I wish I, I wish I could remember which translation has it at the beginning, in fact. Um, they move it up to the beginning. Does anybody got a different translation? It has I, John, in Jesus Christ. Anybody have that? Anyway. But once again, this is something that gives hope. Um, King James not, is not wrong when it says, and patience of Jesus Christ. You could have it the, the idea of the fact that you need to have the same patience that Jesus Christ did. What's the Patience and endurance, okay, all right. In Jesus Christ, and the, the idea there carries with it more than just having patience like Jesus Christ. It's the idea that you can do all these things. You can handle the tribulation. You can be in the kingdom. You can have the, the endurance that you need. Why? Because you're in Jesus Christ. He is the one that keeps all these things going. Yes, calls us, okay. And that carries with it the idea that because you are in Jesus Christ, you need to emulate him, you need to emulate how he handled tribulation, and you need to emulate his patient endurance. Anything else? Good stuff. Well, to prove that John is their companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and in patience of Jesus Christ, he says, let me give you some background information so you'll be reminded that I'm being persecuted too. He says, was in the owl that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John says he is on the owl of Patmos for what reason? Why is he there? Is he taking a vacation at one of those all-inclusive resorts? I think this was an all-inclusive place, but I don't think it was a resort. Absolutely. He's there because he was preaching the word of God. And in the process of preaching the word of God, the text says, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And what was the testimony of Jesus Christ? Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? Some say, you're Elijah. Some say, you're John the Baptist. And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's the testimony of Jesus Christ. And anybody to say he was God, to say that he was the son of God, if he was a, that he was the ruler, the king of kings, the lord of lords, that would get you killed back in that time. They got John put on the Isle of Patmos. So the next question that could be asked, why wasn't he killed? Most people think that every single one of the apostles were dead now but John. Why did he not get put to death? Perhaps, didn't want to make a martyr out of him. John had some, connect, some, some connections going all the way back to Rome. Uh, we don't know if that had anything to do with it. It might have. Probably the number one reason why they disliked John so much, they wanted to make sure he suffered. Now, we think of the Isle of Patmos. We might think, oh, wow, he's on an island. He's having a grand old time. But no, he wasn't having a grand old time there. 
Yes, Julie. All right, he hadn't finished the last book of the Bible. There you go. And it's interesting, you know, Jesus even alluded to the fact that he would be the one who would still be around after the others were gone. But the Isle of Patmos, you can still go there today. It still exists. And there is a cave on this island um, that they will take you on a tour, and they'll say, this is probably where John was. Probably not. History tells us that there was a prison on this island, and John was probably in that prison. Before John went to this prison, he lost every bit of property that he had. He lost everything that he had. He came into this prison with only the clothes on his back. Once he got into this prison, he probably never had anything else given to him. He was given very little food. Uh, There is stories of how there was extreme hard labor on the Isle of Patmos and how that uh, the inmates there had to work through this. There was a lot of dysentery. There was a lot of other illnesses. Uh, They slept on bare floors. Uh, this was not some kind of vacation on a, on, on a resort island. This was a terrible, horrible place to live. Um, early historians tell us, if they are correct, that John probably got to the Isle of Patmos 14 years after Nero became emperor, and he stayed there until he was released after the death of Domitian. Okay? So he was there for, for some, some time. And so uh, he wants them to understand and appreciate the fact that, um, you know, this is not uh, a resort I'm staying at. I'm on the Isle of Patmos. When we read it, we have to think about it. When they read it, they immediately thought, oh, no, he is on Patmos. I can't believe, oh, no, they put him on Patmos because it had a reputation back there. It was a place you did not want to be. The worst criminals went to Patmos. And so John was considered one of the worst criminals to be there. Um, you know, we sometimes read that and we get this idea, well, he was kind of like John, I mean, kind of like uh, Paul when he was in Rome and he had his own quarters and um, had just a guard beside him all the time. And, John, and Paul had some kind of freedom, you know, to move about and whatnot. No, John was on a deserted island for the sake of making sure he couldn't get off of it. Uh, what makes um, um, Alcatraz such an impressive prison uh, here in the United States is surrounded by water. And no man could escape from Alcatraz, though supposedly there have been some, but a lot of people think they were just eaten by sharks. But anyway, but this was a place that was well secured that you couldn't get off of. And it's interesting, 25 times in the book of Revelation, John uses the word sea. Do you think he saw a lot of ocean when he was on this, in, on, on this island? And maybe that's why he uses that term so many times in the book of Revelation. Yeah. It, he, was, he was up in age. Yep. Well, he, this book was probably actually published or actually went to the churches and whatnot around 90 or so, right around that time. Early church fathers, there are some who say that he even got it to be 90. So, and they even have stories about how that, you know, he walked into a bathhouse and there was some heretic in there and the, John told this guy that was with him, we need to get out of here lest the roof fall on top of us and, and how much of that is true, but... John lived a long time, they think, even after getting off the Isle of Patmos and got to see uh, Christianity to come into uh, the realization of not being the the persecution that this comes to pass, in other words. Any other thing? Yes, Mike. Oh, have you been on that tour? Did you go to that little cave? You did? What was in the cave? Okay. Well, since you've been there, tell them how big the island is. It's not that big of an island, is it? I think it's, what, 25 miles square, a whole thing? And it's what, about 30 miles below Ephesus, something like that? Yeah. 
Well, here's a man who has been where John was. Um, well, I certainly know we have no record anywhere about the, the cave splitting because of the revelation that he received. I don't think it came down like a thunderclap and, you know, whatever. Uh, but he may have been in the cave, but most historians believe that there was a prison on this island, and it was like a typical prison. You had cells and that kind of thing, and John was one of the inmates there. But I'm glad to know that. Well, if we have any more information about that, we can check with you. Anything else? Uh, all right, let's look at verse 10. It says while he is on this island, something happened. Verse 10 says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. All right, first thing we want to think about in this particular text, it says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What is the Lord's day? Why would those people who were listening to this the very first time living in the first century would immediately know what he was talking about? What's the Lord's day? Yes, Julie. A resurrection day. That's the Lord's day. Literally in the Greek, it means the day that belongs to the Lord. Okay, we know how possessive work. This phrase is only used one other time, and it's not used with day. It's used with supper. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul refers to the Lord's supper, it means the supper that belongs to the Lord. It shows this is something that belongs to him. So there was a specific day that belonged to the Lord, and that day, of course, as we discover, was the first day of the week that we call Sunday. And though we don't have any biblical evidence that correlates those two directly, saying the first day of the week is the Lord's day, but we do know that it was the first day of the week that about everything happened in the New Testament as far as the church is concerned. We know from Acts 20 and verse 7 that they came together on the Lord's day. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, he says, lay by in store on the first day of the week. Um, but as soon as you leave biblical evidence and get into first century writers, almost all of them, the early church fathers that we have records of, refer to the first day of the week as the Lord's day. And I believe this was something that was very common knowledge or else John wouldn't have said this or else he would explain to them what the Lord's day is. So here he is on a Sunday morning. And we don't know his circumstances. Uh, I read some guy that had this mental image of him walking out onto the surf and watching the ocean and seeing the sun on an early Sunday morning. I don't think they'd let him do that. He might have been just in a cell. Maybe he was in a common area. But this was the Lord's Day. So what's John going to do on the Lord's Day? He's going to worship. I don't know if he, the Bible doesn't tell us if he had other people to worship with. We don't know if he had to worship if he had to worship by himself. But here was a man that was in the process, evidently, of worshiping. In fact, there's a lot of discussion about when it says, I was in the Spirit. Um, what does that mean, I was in the Spirit? And I'll take your guesses because there's a lot of people who have different ideas. What does it mean he was in the Spirit? All right. He was overcome, gotten some kind of, um, um, I can't think of the term right now, but you... Um, Get caught up in a, in a vision or something. Um, trance, like a trance maybe. That's the word I was trying to think of. All right. And certainly, um, John was inspired, and the inspiration is by the Holy Spirit. It may have been there was a big lightning bolt that came down and cracked open the cave and started talking to him. I don't know. Um, but it may be that all he's referring to here is that he's receiving this revelation 
by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Julie, I think I saw your hand, then I'll get to Karen. There you go. So I like that idea too. We'll bring that in in a minute. What were you going to say? All right. Here's the reason why you pick up 12 different commentaries and get 12 different answers here about what's going on here. There are some people that he's having some kind of experience. Uh, he's uh, maybe an out-of-body experience, and he's been uh, taken up, and he's seeing these things that he's going to reveal to us. There are some that's thinking it's talking about the influence of the Holy Spirit, and there are some who think this is just him worshiping. Uh, he, he's worshiping, and the fact that he is in that frame of mind, he's in a spiritual frame of mind that these things are coming about. And the reason why they believe that is because of the fact that they feel that John is making a contrast here that even though he was on the Isle of Patmos, he could still be in the Spirit. In other words, it doesn't matter where you are, you can still be in the Spirit. And so uh, John, it being the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, he certainly would be someone who would worship. And so some people think that that's what's going on. Um, We don't know. Uh, you can picture that he's having some kind of uh, out-of-body experience. You can picture the spirits going to begin talking to him by revelation. Or you can just simply picture a man, and I kind of like leaning toward this because he's already made the point in the text. Here's s- someone who has something in common with you. And here's something you'll be doing on the Lord's Day also. And it may be he was even thinking about all those people all over the world at that time on that particular Lord's Day who was doing the exact same thing he was. He was worshiping God on the Lord's Day. And, of course, we've talked about that before, oftentimes around the Lord's table and whatnot, how that, you know, right now as we're partaking of this Lord's Supper, there are people all over the world doing the same thing because they're doing what God had commanded. And that may be all that's happening here. But because of his situation that he was in the spirit, whatever that means, all of a sudden behind him he hears a great voice as of a trumpet. And we don't know what that means other than it was a voice that had, was loud. It was a voice that would certainly get his attention. And um, that's all we can basically say about that. I'm going, any questions or comments? I'm going to stop there because of the fact that I do not want to get in. Well, I'll tell you what. We can get into verse 11, and then we'll stop at verse 12. Um, he says, once again, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Um, this person that announced themselves in verse 8, announces himself again, thereby authorizing what he's about to tell him. And he says, the things that you see now, John, you need to send it unto these seven churches which are in Asia. He introduced these seven churches in verse 4, but now he gives us the specific names of these particular churches. And so uh, John is going to be writing to these churches specifically. And, of course, in chapter 2 and verse 3, there are some specific things that he tells these churches Um, but we have some visual imagery he's going to give us before we get to a discussion about the good and the bad things of these seven churches. And I do not want to get into uh, verse 12 in this next section without us having some time to talk about it. So I don't want to start some new information right now.